Hi everyone, welcome back to the Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I interview some amazing disabled people. Today, we're going to be talking to Roxanne Steele. Roxanne is an amazing diversity and inclusion specialist and a badass intersectional feminist. Today, we're going to be talking about all things job applications to feminism, and I can't wait to jump into this conversation. Imagine I'm trying to um, get to a bus. I nearly said run for a bus. I ain't running for no buses. I ain't running for no one. And a bus driver doesn't put the ramps down. I'm disabled. But if that same bus driver gets out and puts the ramp down, I'm not disabled. My ability hasn't changed. If we, if we acknowledge that everyone has different experiences, then actually how they experience the world is going to impact differently. So actually it's really hard to unpick whether I face more discrimination because of my disability or my gender or any of the other labels. But what I would say is probably more discrimination towards my disability because no one else sees anything other than that. So yes, if you put disabled people in workplaces, as is, we are less productive. But actually, that's a fault of the company. That is the fault of society. That is the fault of the economy. Great. Well, Roxanne, thank you so much for agreeing to come on The Wheelchair Activist and talk to us about everything to do with you and what you do but can you start by telling our wonderful listeners a little bit about you? Of course and first of all I'd like to say thank you Emma for having me. (laughs) So I'm Roxanne Steele. I am what you would call a wheelchair activist. I come from lived experience of having cerebral palsy, spastic dysplasia of the upper and lower limbs. And for me, that looks like using a manual wheelchair 99% of the time, as well as having support workers to enable me to remain independent, whether that be at work, when I'm campaigning, or when I'm just at home. I also use assistive technology to help me as well. Thank you so much. And you beautifully brought me on to something that I wanted to talk to you about. So I was looking at your LinkedIn and what I noticed on there was that you have listed in your experience that you are the direct employer of a team of personal assistants or carers. And I really loved that you included that because, you know, it's a conversation that I've had with a few disabled people on do we talk about the fact that we are employers and that we have to deal with all of that in sort of like job interviews or anything like that you know do we feel comfortable sharing that as an experience in that setting so I really liked that you did include it and just sort of wanted to ask what what made you include that in your LinkedIn Uh, I've always included it in my CV Uh, because I think it's silly not to. We manage staff, which also means that we recruit staff and support staff, which means I have years of leadership experience. And a lot of the things I talk about in my work is we talk about disablement. We often associate that with deficits, but actually what are the assets 
of having disablement and what can that bring? And actually, I can't guarantee it, but I do think that's why I've got a lot of jobs and been able to um, quite happily sit in a leadership position. Because I do think disabled people, not all disabled people, hashtag not all disabled people, but are natural leaders. And I, I think we need, we need to create spaces and allow people to celebrate the assets that their disablement brings. I really love that answer. I think it's so it's so obvious when you say it that you know hiring PAs and managing PAs is a great example of leadership. And I think I'm going to go in and add that to my CV and my LinkedIn. I would really encourage other people to because it it's a great example of that and you know particularly for younger disabled people who may not have experience in a management role you already do really by hiring PA so I love that um so I wanted to like a big part of me wanting to talk to you is not just about your amazing experience in disability and being an activist but what I loved about all of your social media presences was that you talk about being a disabled feminist and that's an identity that I absolutely have and that I love and I wanted to ask you what that looks like for you what is being a feminist and being disabled to you Okay, that, thank you for asking that question. To be honest, I've always been a disabled feminist, but I haven't always had the language or haven't felt able to identify as a disabled feminist because for lack of a better term, who the hell am I? What am I doing? And actually now I feel more enabled to put that on my bio. I am a proud disabled feminist. And I think it's important that we celebrate disabled people in feminist spaces. And one one reason and one person that I'd very much like to shout out as to why I feel so enabled to be a disabled feminist is the guilty feminist. And the reason I bring it up here is I, I know that you have worked with Deborah as well and, and have found that enabling. Absolutely. I absolutely love the guilty feminist and I love Deborah Francis White and I completely agree with you that she also gave me the language to talk about feminism and I think I didn't truly understand what it was I mean I understood what feminism was but I never identified with it until Deborah presented it in a really relatable way and in a way that made sense in today's world but I I'm really interested in like furthering this conversation of feminism and disability but I have a big question that I ask all of my guests but I'd love to know what does disability mean to you? What does disability mean to me? Wow that is a big question to unpick on a podcast so I know that after I answer this question, I'm going to leave the podcast and go, I could have said this, that and the other. <laughs> and I know it's going to be one of those answers that I'm going to give you. But actually, disablement is through society. It's not myself. I'm not the person with the problem. So, okay, 
dial it back a bit. In my work, I talk about the models of disability and the lenses in which we view disability through. And actually, a lot of people's experiences of dis disablement are either being viewed through a medical lens, so that's when we've got the impairment, we're the problem, or the general public as a whole sees us under the charity lens so again we're, we're victims we're someone to be pitied but actually disablement if we look at it in a social model context i'm not the person with the problem society has created barriers so for example imagine i'm trying to um, get to a bus i nearly said run for a bus i ain't running for no buses i ain't running for no one <laughs> and a bus driver doesn't put the ramps down. I'm disabled. But if that same bus driver gets out and puts the ramp down, I'm not disabled. My ability hasn't changed. I think that's a perfect way of illustrating the social model. And I like that you brought up the other models of disability because it's not something that we've explored on this podcast very much. But I think it's worth sort of saying, you know, what those other models are and like you said with the charity model it's very much like we are the recipients of charity or you know acts of charity and if we also look at the medical model that just looks at what's different about our dna or our bodies that creates the impairment that we have and i completely agree with you that the social model makes the most sense because it looks at access and I, I yeah i love the example of of the bus because it makes so much sense you know if the ramp is down you get on the bus just like everyone else um so i think that that's really interesting that you drive that home so much in your work and i wonder could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do i know that you work with a variety of organizations and you're you know, an accessibility trainer yourself, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about what you do. Okay, so I work with a diversity and ability as my main kind of core work, um, which is a multi-award winning social uh, enterprise that is led by and for disabled people. And um, when I talk about inclusion and accessibility, well, I'm not just talking about disablement. We actually look at the wider spectrum of uh, disablement put in place by diversity and potentially um, society, you know, societal uh, perception. So we're looking at the wider side of things. But obviously, that does come with that level of disablement. And actually, when we talk about diversity, it's really good to talk about disablement because I think it's quite understandable how we can we can move that across. So in our work, uh, we do obviously discuss like the medical model and the charity model and the social model, as I've just discussed to you. But what we also do is embrace um, a celebratory framework. So this is kind of another model that um, the team have nothing I've worked on. Uh, they've been open for 11 years. I've only been there for a year. Um, but they built this. And the idea of the celebratory model, and I hope DNA don't mind me saying it at all, is that everyone is unique and everyone can thrive. So yes, we can put in those anticipatory changes so we can make those physical spaces more accessible. But actually, for some people, 
And on some days, you can't remove barriers. We have chronic illnesses and chronic pain. So it's about looking at the proactive adjustments. So if we dial it right back to give a basic example, do you ever hear the phrase, that meeting could have been an email? Yeah. Well, could that, could that email be a voice note or a Zoom call so that people aren't struggling with walls of emails and text or that people are struggling with tone? Because actually everyone is going to struggle with a level of tone as well. I believe after the pandemic, we are currently in a pandemic, but after the pandemic, because of tonal indicators, you know, we're, we're communicating through these technical surfaces, but actually there's no tone. And what I find is not only does voice notes help me, I'm not getting that wall of text, I'm not having to physically write, which is like my hand, but also my tone is coming across. I really understand what you mean there. I think we've all been in situations where we've misread the tone of a text message from a friend or a family member or a colleague or whoever it may be. And I, a big thing that I've learned through my work, particularly at Scope, where it's a pan disability charity is about those different ways of communicating. And I think the way that you framed it is really interesting because you're not just framing it from, well, what's the most accessible to you, but also what is what makes the most sense and what allows us all to understand each other the best. And actually, what, what makes the team most productive? Because that's why I love this. Because a lot of the time, when you're sat in disability training, I don't know if you've felt this, but you often find that participants come because they think they need to learn this just in case me or you turn up. But actually, this model allows us to look at how we can support everyone and the team can be more productive as a whole. So actually, it's not about identifying whether we've got marginalised individuals. It's about getting it right for those marginalised individuals will get it right for everyone. And actually, that's going to come out mm. in business needs and social needs as well. Sorry to interrupt. I get passionate. No, please do. I think that that was perfectly said and I think if we're looking at productivity I think that that's such it's it's such a buzzword but I think you know I I don't know if you remember this but I remember a few years ago the chancellor of the exchequer at the time was Philip Hammond and he I can't remember the exact comment but he made the comment about how having disabled employees negatively impacts productivity and I was furious at that because you know I know so many disabled people who are bringing so much value to organizations and are really doing the opposite of being a, a strain on productivity. They're enhancing it and enhancing the overall reputation or profits or whatever it is of the organization that they're in. But I think if we try and challenge the idea of what makes teams productive from an overall perspective like you were saying it just really it benefits everyone and it'll benefit the overall aims of the organization whatever it happens to be and I think it's it's really important and it's something that I've certainly learned you know the more time I've been in the working world or the workplace it's that 
everyone has different ways of working. You know, some people prefer little, you know, Teams messages or, you know, text messages throughout the day. Other people would rather save it all for a one-hour meeting. So really, it's, it's no different than having a conversation of, do you prefer voice notes or do you prefer emails or meetings and all of that? So I think it's a really valid point that you raise. Absolutely. And when you're talking about that situation, um, was that when they said that disabled people should be paid less than the minimum wage? I'm just trying to make sure that I've, I, I'm i in the right headspace because obviously mm. there is a lot of ableism. So I'm presuming that's, that's where that anger came from. Yeah, I think it I think it was now that you've said that. I wrote about it um at at the time, but I do think it was a justification for paying disabled people less. Um either less than the minimum wage or less than their non-disabled peers and I I'd love to hear your thoughts on on that because as a diehard campaigner like me, I can imagine you had some choice phrases about that yes and and I have to say those choice phrases I used back then were very different you know I uh, definitely during the past two years my language has upgraded oh you know I I really uh changed so my language has upgraded um but actually I have to agree give me give me a second Uh, I have to agree of course employing disabled people are they're going to be less productive if we don't remove barriers yes if we're going to put people in situations as they are now of course they're going to be less productive so what we've got to think about is not only those physical barriers but actually what are the attitudinal barriers so if the attitudes aren't there um, so say, for example, you're my potential managers. If the attitude isn't there from you that I belong here and my attitude is I don't think I belong here, then none of the other barriers ever going to change. So you're going to see communication barriers go up because we, we, you know, we're not thinking about do we need to turn on those hearing loops? And then you're going to create more barriers because information is not going to reach the right people because one, the attitude isn't there because these people don't need the information. The physical barriers are there because I can't access the information. I can't communicate with you. So there's so many barriers. So yes, if you put disabled people in workplaces as is, we are less productive. But actually, that's a fault of the company. Mm. That is fault of society. That is the fault of the economy. I think that makes a lot of sense when you phrase it like that and with all of those considerations in there because I I know through work that I've done around disabled employment that I I always tell disabled people to not be afraid of asking for reasonable adjustments or applying for support through access access to work um, and to allow them to achieve the best that they can. So if we put adjustments in place so that disabled people are not placed at a disadvantage in the workplace, then that goes to what your your point was earlier about how everyone can thrive and everyone should be allowed to do that. So I think that that's a really interesting consideration. And 
I'm interested in asking you this because you've said about your language and your knowledge changing over time in terms of, you know, identifying as a feminist. But I want to know when you were growing up, who were your role models? That is actually a harder question than any of the other other theories and things that you've thrown at me. Because I'm not one of these people that has just one person. Because I think we should take our views from multiple people and take elements of people that we like. Because actually, no whole person is perfect. But I have to say... Um, one of my role models um, is is my father. Um, I was brought up by a single young dad who obviously had to work a lot and support a young female child with complex medical issues. He taught me without kind of realising and in hindsight that actually gender role doesn't matter. Societal expectation doesn't matter. What you need to get out of life matters. And as long as you are doing things in the right way and not hurting anyone, then it shouldn't matter what your gender is, what your role is, what the expectation is. And actually also what that taught me in hindsight again is how many barriers other people face. So I'm quite happy to sit here and talk about my barriers, but actually... In the 90s or early 2000s, if you like, going into it, the idea of a male person looking after quite a complex female and not giving up their job was like, I don't understand. Because my dad had to work early, um, so he'd often have to leave. And we'd ask social services, well, he would ask social services, can we have some support in the mornings? Well, no, we can't provide support till eight o'clock. Well, actually, my dad's job couldn't start at eight o'clock. So it often meant that we'd have to get up early, then I'd have to be dropped off at a neighbour's. But the whole idea of it is, you've got a disabled child, why aren't you quitting your job? I think that that's so, so interesting and a really unique perspective. And, you know, I... Just, you know, big respect to your dad for for doing that and doing it by himself as well. Because I know, you know, that being a parent of a child with complex needs isn't easy. And doing it by yourself, which unfortunately, you know, a lot of parents of disabled children do end up doing it by themselves. Um, You know, it's, it's not easy. And I think that's so interesting as well that you had that experience with social services and sort of them not understanding that you know your family needs were what they were and they really needed to adapt to you as opposed to you and your dad adapting to what they were able to provide um but you know I think that that's it's a really unique perspective and I'm really glad that you you shared that um because I think a lot of people will resonate with the the fact, you know, if we have any parents listening to this, they'll probably really resonate with the, you know, should I or do I need to quit my job to look after my disabled child? But then how do I afford what the basic family needs are, let alone, you know, the disability price tag that we have, which for people who 
aren't familiar with that term, it's a term that Scope uses a lot. And the disability price tag is the amount of money that a disabled person or a family with a disabled person has to pay every month um, to achieve the same standard of living than, you know, to a non-disabled person. And that price tag is currently at around £583 a month. So, you know, it's a huge amount of money that we have to pay for extra expenses just to achieve the same standard of living. Um, so, you know, it's it's not possible for people to, you know, for parents to not work at all. Yes, and, and obviously while we're not here to talk about parents and things like that, I do think it's quite a relevant point to bring up that while we're talking about barriers to the workplace, what barriers are carers and, and people with caring responsibilities facing? So actually you might be creating generations or pockets of families that actually face barriers. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly valid point. And I don't think that the role of carers, particularly you know, unpaid family carers, is given the recognition that it deserves. And I could sort of go on and on about carers allowance and things like that. But I think that, that you know, for for another time maybe and maybe if we you know if I end up interviewing a, a parent that would be something to bring up but I'm so glad that you did mention your dad and you know the decisions that you all had to make as a family um but I want to sort of flip the conversation slightly you know we've talked a lot about barriers and particularly in the workplace but I'd love to know from you what is something that you're most proud of? That's really hard. As a person, as I'm sure many of you listening, that really struggles with imposter syndrome, asking me that question is really hard. And I'm going to detour a bit because I think it's relevant. It's interesting that you use that phrase because in The Authority Gap, the a new book by Mary, I'm sorry I've forgotten her name, I will confirm that later with you and hopefully Emma can put something in. Of course. Um, said we should stop asking candidates what they're most proud of when we go for job interviews because what that does, and it is a bit of a detour but I found it interesting, is create space for um, mostly non-marginalised people to celebrate what they're proud of and actually create space for people that actually do face imposter syndrome and marginalisation to feel inadequate. That's really interesting. And I have to admit, you know, when I was asking you that question, I anticipated you bringing up imposter syndrome because I know that that's something that you identify with and I think a lot of disabled people identify with you know that feeling of you know I'm not good enough to be here or I don't deserve this recognition or you know those types of feelings and I know that I've certainly had it and you know still have it a lot you know where you think you know like you said earlier who am I to be doing this you know who am I to be hosting this podcast even on you know interviewing other disabled people but I'm choosing to do it because I think it's important and I want to recognize other disabled people and their achievements so but I do really understand what you're saying about making up 
making people with imposter syndrome feel uncomfortable. So, you know, I, I suppose what's the question that then interviewers should be asking? Oh, I, I should have thought about that before bringing up the question because I've kind of <laughs> tucked my... Um, I would say, how could you be an asset to our company? So rather than oh. looking at an, a culture fit, because I hate that, because actually culture fits bring in groupthink and nothing changes, but how can I complement or ask, be an asset to your culture and to your team? I think that's a really great question and I think it then allows people to draw on all sorts of different things and different aspects of their life or their personality and I want to know what you think about this you know working in sort of that diversity and inclusion space um we, there's been a lot of talk about things like um removing um, things like names or ages and you know th- that those sorts of pieces of data from applications that there's no unconscious bias towards different groups of people by the hiring manager but I while I understand the merits in that I personally feel that diversity should be celebrated and I think you know, your example, you know, when we started this conversation, we started to talk about you putting the fact that you're an employer of a team of a team of carers on your CV and on your LinkedIn. So, you know, by including that, you're sort of demonstrating your disability, if that makes sense. So, you know, do you think that sort of that doing away with those pieces of data is the right move or should we be drawing on people's differences because they should be celebrated I realize that's a huge question yes I was gonna say I was literally I'm picking that question in my head okay so blind CVing um, it is something that we recommend as an option it is something that you can do I think it's important because probably me and you understand about blind CV but if I just pull it down a little bit for the listeners uh, blind CV is the idea that if you remove for example names or institutions where you um, have been educated as an example and um, that's going to stop a level of discrimination whether that's be discrimination consciously or unconsciously for example ethnic sounding names are more likely to be um, unconsciously removed or even consciously removed because mm. one, uh, because of any stigma, but actually it's through um, the manager's fear of not being able to pronounce it, spell it and get it right. And that's a lot of the problem, people's fear. And as I say, it's also removing stuff like institutions will, will stop those people that always always kind of get in places necessarily mm. getting in places just because they can use a name and and you're absolutely right um if we remove diversity that's not good either so what we're not we're not asking them to do is remove that what we don't want to do is for them to literally have to disclose my name is Roxanne I'm 32 and I have medical conditions of x y and z 
So it's not about completely blinding it, as in the person's personality and experience. It's about taking those initial barriers that are possibly going to create some conscious or unconscious. And so I do think there's a balance. But also, I think if we have to discuss blind CVing to ensure that there is a bias, I think that talks more about the work that we need to do with people in leadership positions. Yeah, I completely hear what you're saying there. And I don't know about you, but I've always found on application forms where, you know, you there are different options, but where it has the tick box of do you consider yourself to have a disability, yes or no, and then it asks you to name the conditions that you have. I find that really unhelpful because I think, you know, if we look at, so, you know, the example that I gave is I have spinal muscular atrophy, right? So at the time when I was working on disabled employment, so did my manager. And the way that our disabilities manifested were really different. Yes, we we're both electric wheelchair users, but I have a ventilator through a tracheostomy because I had spine flu and she didn't. But, you know, technically we both have the same name condition. So I think it's really unhelpful to put down the name of the condition. Um, so I'm wondering, is that, you know, sort of what do you think is the, again, I realize I'm putting you on the spot, but what do you think is the right or the best way in your opinion to phrase that question on an application or how to approach that? Oh, big question. I hope I, I, hope I can make this as clear because I'm just unpicking it in my head. Uh, but I would like to preface, preface this with, we understand medical diagnosis and medical professionals are really important in the right places. It's when it starts like seeping into the wrong places and starts going into the workplace and then beginning to um, open up a scenario where you're being perceived as an impairment that we need to move away from. So I absolutely agree. Um, it's nice to know that you've got cerebral palsy or SMA, but actually, what does that tell you? Because what do you know about cerebral palsy or SMA? And I think that causes mm. a bit of stress from managers of like, how am I going to support this person? So what we need to do is forget that. You can ask, obviously, did they self-identify as disabled or identify as the um, under the Discrimination Act? Sorry. But what we should be asking is what barriers do you face at work? Yeah. Do you face barriers when reading, processing, listening, concentration? Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think it really should be framed from a barriers perspective because then you can approach the solution. You can approach ways to remove those barriers. So instead of asking, you know, do you have a disability? Maybe instead ask, do you require any adjustments at interview? Um, or, you know, for in the workplace, wherever it is that you want to ask, but come at it from that perspective, I find much more useful. I totally agree with you um, that we need to look past the medical 
um, definitions, but I do want to preface that the medical conditions and the, the need for medical diagnosis isn't a bad one. It's when we move it into the workplace um, that it becomes a problem. What we need to start thinking about is again, everyone are looking at asking what barriers do you face in the workplace so we can start identifying barriers and start removing them whether that be those attitudinal barriers whether there's communication physical barriers whether someone could um possibly um benefit from assistive technology yeah i completely agree with you there i think it's so important to ask everyone because everyone will need some type of adjustment or to approach the work day in different ways you know if we didn't we'd all be you know robots you know everyone is a unique person and everyone has you know different situations and circumstances that impact them in the workplace so let's frame it from how can we support everyone absolutely i wanted to come back to what you were sort of saying about different marginalized groups and you know obviously you identify as a feminist and we know that women can often be an oppressed group you know we face pay discrimination we face attitudinal discrimination and you know all of that horrible stuff but I sort of wonder where do you sort of see the biggest challenges I guess for you you know do do you feel that some of the discrimination that you faced is more informed by disability or by your gender or sort of yeah what's your experience being of that crossover oh interesting and thank you for setting me up for my favorite subject intersectionality so I really appreciate that thank you um Okay, so intersectionality, for those that don't know, is the idea that I'm more than just a disabled person. So I'm not just someone that has cerebral palsy. I am someone who's female. I'm someone of a certain age, and that phrase makes me sound really old. I didn't mean it like that. Um, I identify as LGBTQ+. Um, you know, and all these different things. So if we look at, in regards to the Equality Act, um, we can look at those protective characteristics, but actually it's larger than that. It's all our labels, all our experiences. You know, I'm a Marvel fan. I think Emma's a fan of Harry Potter, if I remember. I might have made that up. Nope, absolutely spot on. So if we if we acknowledge that everyone has different experiences, then actually how they experience the world is going to impact differently. So actually it's really hard to unpick whether I face more discrimination because of my disability or my gender or any of the other labels. Well, what I would say is probably more discrimination towards my disability because no one else sees anything other than that. I think that's a really fair point. And, you know, it's something that I've talked about with other guests. And when you are out and about in the world, um, it can sometimes feel that people are just seeing your mobility aid if you have one or you know what if your disability manifests in a in a physical way people see that first and it was in um a previous episode which at the time that we're recording this has not 
gone up, but it will by the time this one goes up with um, Nina Tame. Nina talked about her experience of using mobility aids as she got a little bit older and how she found it actually really quite freeing because she could wear whatever she wanted because she thought, well, doesn't matter because people are only going to see the wheelchair, so it doesn't actually matter if I'm wearing something bold or bright or whatever. So, but I think talking about intersectionality the way that you do is really important because, you know, there's a big criticism of the sort of quote-unquote mainstream feminist movement that it excludes women with different labels, like you so rightly put it. You know, it excludes women of color, it excludes LGBTQIA plus women and disabled women. And yeah, has that sort of been your experience of engaging with the feminist movement? Okay. Um, well, what I would say and what I'd like to say if I've got the time, I don't know if I've got a time limit on this podcast and I don't know no. if Emma knows that I could talk for a week. So <laughs> good luck to whoever's editing this. Um, yes, absolutely. When we talk about intersectionality, it's really important to know where this comes from. So who actually invented or invented this word, for lack of a better term? And actually, it's an ally the disabled community was actually from the black community that this language came and that was from uh, Kimberly Crenshaw who was actually within the feminist spaces in the 1989 I think it was and uh, predominantly those spaces were for white presenting housewives whose expectations to go to work weren't there so therefore there were more barriers for them to get to work so they were facing barriers to get to work, whereas Kimberley or the black community as a general, I am making generalisations here, um, they had the expectation to go to work in that community. Actually, there was a, a higher level of equality, but because of our general society, black women faced barriers. But actually, there was no language to explain that. And that's why Kimberley uh, came up with this language to explain that actually we, we might have um, the same wants and things like that, but actually the, they might come from different reasons. And I think that's really important to talk about in feminist spaces because actually who can be an ally in any sort of campaigning? For example, I might want to campaign, this is a, a big general generalization, um, to uh, make curbs more accessible, you know, drop those curbs. Well, the disabled community can help me, but also who else can help me? Possibly mums with prams. Mm. So, so we can think about how we can, we can help each other. So while um, you're most likely to intersect with disablement at any point in your life rather than race, um, it was our allies that gave us that language. And I recently um, published a post on LinkedIn to that effect. I know you've been looking at my LinkedIn. So if anyone wants to read that, that is available. I think that that's so interesting. And I, I personally wasn't aware that that's where the language came from. But I, I did I know from you know other things that I've watched or listened to or read that it, it, a lot of the criticism of the feminist movement was that it wasn't addressing the concerns of 
black women or, you know, any women of color who do, like you quite rightly say, face unique barriers. And I, I'm personally a huge believer in intersectional feminism because it's, it allows everyone to benefit and it, it quite, like you said, it allows us to help each other. And a campaign that I worked on, that, you know, unfortunately because of COVID didn't really get off the ground, but a campaign that I worked on at Muscular Dystrophy UK was looking at disabled women's access to cervical screenings. Um, and by women, I also want to just a caveat and say, you know, that when we were campaigning, we made sure that we weren't just talking about, you know, cis women. Um, you know, it was all individuals who either identified as a woman or who had the medical need to have a cervical screening. But we sort of used the public attention of, you know, women were not going to get their cervical screenings and there was a public campaign to try and encourage women to do that at the time and there still is but we tried to say there's this group of women who would like to access this health screening but were unable to because so many women um excuse me so many disabled women need a hoist to allow them to get onto the examination table to get that screening so you know there were women that i knew who are receiving letter after letter saying, book your screening, book your screening, but were unable to do that because the facilities weren't there. So I think that really speaks to intersectional feminism, that if you're going to be campaigning for women to receive this screening, address the individual concerns of this group of women and, you know, sort of yeah, bring everyone along with you. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I have done um, some work on campaigning around um, women's health myself, including a research group on provision for smear tests, but also as part of my role as a trained campaigner with uh, the Young Women's Trust, I was given the opportunity to speak intersectionally on the new women's health strategy that was um, coming out last year. So I actually sat in uh, well, a Zoom room with uh, Mims Davis from the DWP and Matt Hancock and uh, did I actually speak to the to those issues that you spoke to and basically I spent an hour talking to Matt Hancock about my period <laughs> that was before he was uh, obviously disgraced. That has to be the title for this episode I don't care what my producer says that has to be the title for this episode I spent an hour talking to Matt Hancock about my period I think that that's <laughs> amazing and I love that you were given that platform, though, because disabled women need to be included in discussions about women's health. So I'm so pleased that you were able to do that. Absolutely. And that brings me back to the second part of your question earlier. I didn't answer because I tangented. Um, how welcome did I feel in feminist spaces? To begin with, and, and this is very much on my own attitude, not very welcome. I didn't, I didn't even put myself out into spaces to do that. And as I say, it might feel like we're sponsored by uh, Deborah, but we're not. Um, it, it was actually Deborah putting a call out before COVID about the joyful resistance to supporting refugees. And again, I, I posted 
in my post about intersectionality, I spoke about how I think actually one of the headings I use is um, what the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here sort of feeling. And actually, once I was in those spaces, Deborah and the whole group of people made me feel very welcome. And maybe it was my own attitudinal barriers. And it was from that that my confidence grew that I actually applied to trainers and activists with the Young Women's Trust. So yes, the in spaces I've been in have been very welcoming, but actually what wasn't welcoming and what caused the barrier was potentially my own attitude. But I do know mm. that not all feminist spaces are created equally or as accessible or as welcoming. And that is why I really want to praise the Guilty Feminist. Mm as well um for all the support that they give yeah completely agree i think the guilty feminist is sort of the in my opinion is the gold standard of intersectionality i um remember this one episode in particular that um rosie jones was on and actually ellen jones was on as well who's another amazing disability rights campaigner and talks a lot about the intersectionality of being disabled and being LGBTQIA+. And what I loved was um, they talked about representation and, you know, the fact that this was an episode where they had two queer disabled women on and it was sort of the most represented that those two individuals had ever really been. And... um, this is often a little bit of a tangent as well, but in the episode, Rosie Jones did a stand-up routine where she was discovering her sexuality and real and um, had to Google, you know, are there any other gay, like, can you be gay and disabled? Um, because she didn't know any other gay disabled people and so didn't have that representation. So sort of thought, well, I can't be both. And it just really stood out to me as, you know, that Deborah Francis White is really consistently making an effort to include all women. And I agree, she's just fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. I, as I say, I hope you don't think that I'm sponsored. I'm really not. I'm not trying to slap up. It is we a, wish. A genuine experience. Yes. If you would like us on anything or to sponsor Emma because she's amazing, go ahead, Deb. Go ahead. Please. She's amazing. Plus, if we get sponsorship, we might get a series. So you never know. Anyway, carrying on uh, with my little tangent in my head. Um, Yes. Um, It's funny that you bring up Ellen because Ellen was one of the people I met that day. Oh, really? Yes. And she, uh, they were very supportive and they were... one of the reasons that I kind of came out of there and went, well, maybe I can write something. Maybe I can do something. Because in my head, I felt like you needed a degree or like some authority to be an activist. Like you needed to be knighted by some sort of core feminist to be able to. I think that that really speaks so perfectly, though, to this brand I'm creating the wheelchair activist and you know on my homepage and sort of in this like about what this project is I say I don't care how you do something I care that you're trying to do something you know if you are a disabled person who for 
so many reasons can't go out and lobby in the you know in parliament or march in a in a protest then that's fine but let's look at the ways that you can get your perspective out there because it it deserves to be heard and for you you know realizing that you can write and that you were able to be part of that incredibly important discussion through zoom obviously that was you know a hallmark of the pandemic oh no i i was actually uh, i was uh, sorry were you talking about matt hancock or uh, matt hancock sorry. initially yes that was zoom sorry i was going to correct you <laughs> and i didn't need to correct you my head was in a different space in our conversation um that is a neurodivergent tangent well neurodivergent pattern pending because i'm trying to get a diagnosis uh, but I think actually uh, tangents are an asset that neurodiversity brings and that really helps with stuff like podcasts, you know, just plugging, plugging. No, plug away. I I think it's so, it's so important that you raise that. And, you know, at the beginning of this conversation before I recorded, I said, you know, I want this to be a free flowing conversation. And I I love the tangents that, we've gone down in this because I think that they're so valuable and they're so interesting and I don't want this podcast to be a, you know, question and answer type of thing because I feel it's, you get so much more value from the questions that I haven't got written down on my phone, you know, as helpful as those are and how interesting they are, you know, it's, it's the tangents that are the real gold nuggets in here, I think. But I, you know, with... What I was thinking about with the platform of the wheelchair activist and using whatever tools and platforms and resources that are available to you and that you feel able to use is so important to get whatever your message is or whatever your story is out into the world. And, you know, I, I'm going to now go away and have a look on your LinkedIn again and read your post about intersectionality and try and educate myself more on the the history of that term and try and, you know, share it with other people. So I would absolutely recommend everyone who's listening to do that as well. And I want to wrap up this conversation by asking you another big question. But my question is, what advice would you give your younger self and to others like you? That is a big question. I have two things. One, I would say, is not your fault. Any Anything that has been told has been your fault. Impairment, you know, the fact that you brought the problem. Nothing is actually your fault or your responsibility. That wasn't helpful. And I would tell my younger self, be yourself now because this is the only time to be it and actually people are going to judge you whether yourself you're you are yourself or not I think that that's really important advice I think that it can sometimes take a bit of time to feel comfortable in who you are and to discover who you are but I I know from my experience that you know the longer that you don't represent sort of your whole self the longer you'll feel that you're not doing everything that 
you can for the communities that you're in and that you want to help. So I I love that. And I think really, I want to hammer home your point, but it's not your fault. And I think that really speaks to the social model of disability. You know, you didn't, if you know, presuming you're a wheelchair user, but you didn't put those steps there. You didn't choose not to put in a ramp. So why is it your fault or your responsibility that you can't access that building? You know, I think we we do feel that we're the problem, we're the burden all the time. And I am so pleased that you said that it's not your fault because I want other people to hear that. And I think that the more we say it, the more we'll believe it ourselves and the more that we'll start to believe it when we're out and about in the world. May I say one more thing? Because I would really like to say this. Please. Just because I get a lot of feedback that everyone's like, oh, you're so confident, you know, you speak and I wish I could do that. I promise you, I'm sat here faking it until I make it. I'm not confident. I don't know what I'm doing. I couldn't believe Emma messaged me and I even think I checked whether, are you sure? So if you think, oh my God, I couldn't do what Roxanne does. You can, because all I do is fake it and then work out how to make it into a real thing as I go along, you know, Mm. because it's the only way you're going to do it. Nothing, I am a perfectionist and actually turning 30 in lockdown has taught me that actually for something to be perfect, it has to start and that means it's not perfect. I think that that's such valuable insight. And I think a lot of people will resonate with that, you know, that feeling of being a perfectionist and wanting it to be great. But, you know, unless you start it, you don't know if it's going to be great or if it's going to be terrible. And you you did ask me if I was sure that I wanted you on the podcast. And I thought, well, yeah. Because you're a you know amazing campaigner, and I want to talk to you about feminism because it's it's such a big part of who I am, and I want other people to learn from it. So no, I absolutely wanted you on. I'm so glad that you agreed and that we've managed to have this conversation because I've learned loads from you in just this past hour, and I really hope that other people will as well so thank you so much thank you thank you so much for listening to this episode of the wheelchair activist with Roxanne Steele I learned so so much from her and about the history of intersectionality I really hope that you got something from it too before you go I just want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe and a Patreon set up for this podcast Your contributions, whatever they may be, will allow us to continue to invest in the accessibility of this amazing podcast that we've put together. We're working with the podcast producer and doing regular accessibility audits of the website. If you can contribute anything, that would be fantastic. And if not, feel free to give this a share and maybe that rich uncle will come through and donate to this amazing podcast project. Speak to you very soon.